Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, a Song of Ice and Fire, Episode 74, John Snow in A Dance with Dragons, Chapter 8. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. You might know me from the internet as Liza Arbor on Twitter, Tumblr, and LizaNarborGold.com. And I am Eliana, another one of your hosts. You might know me as Glass Table Girl on Reddit, or maybe as Arithmetric over on Twitter. I can't believe how packed this episode is going to be for this slim little chapter. Yeah, I actually thought it was a longer chapter, but turns out it was just dense. <laughs> Lots of info dumped, like, right here. Yeah. Boom, bam, stuff happens. We move on. And, you know, as I read it, I was like, should we have done eight and nine together? But then I, like, zoomed ahead and, like, reread chapter nine after this. And I was like, oh, no. Hell no. There's so much that happens in that. That needs a whole entire, like, hour and a half, two hours dedicated to it. But this... This is like a strong, a strong chapter. I, I've i come to appreciate it, I think. It's the espresso of John chapters. Yeah, it really gets you ahead to get you through this, get you nine. Yeah. And then the real shit goes down. Yeah. There's things that play out in the upcoming chapters based on this one. But there's also other stuff that I think we're going to see more of how that plays out in the books but later on i think it was like setting stuff up that was supposed to happen in late dance but as we all know george had to move like what i think the number was 250 pages or so of dance into wins because he just still like wasn't done wrapping things up and so just restructured yeah and those 250 are like what carryover minutes like at&t style for those of you that remember those and i feel like rollover minutes are happening Mm -hmm. More and more. I feel like George is going to have enough rollover for another book. <laughs> so we got an email from our friend Pat a long time ago. I'm talking like beginning of October. And I wanted to come back to it. I was waiting. It came a little bit after when I would have liked to talk about it. So now I think it's a great time to bring it back, especially as we look at Tormund Giant's Babe and his uh, his band of merry men coming back into the picture. By merry men, I mean... Free folk that are running from the others and dying. We're booing at that boo. Boo, boo death. <laughs> boo death. How dare. How dare it come for us at the end of our lives always. So yeah, this uh, email comes from our good friend Pat. It says, turning back to the recent podcasts, which are now no longer recent. Side note. <laughs> I appreciated the discussion that followed Mance's terms to John, which recontextualized the wilding migration south. Although we should look sympathetically on the free folk, not wanting to be destroyed and reanimated as thralls to the others, I think the fans of the books slash show often go too far in criticizing the Night's Watch slash the North and their anxiety of letting the wildlings south of the Wall. Although it isn't wrong to reframe the wildlings as refugees in contrast to how they were originally presented in John's chapters, as Mance Raider putting together a massive army, Mance's terms really do support the invasion narrative as well as the refugee narrative. Mance and his people certainly need to escape into the south, but his concept that his people would be separate from the feudal society whose lands they were going to be occupying is a dangerous notion. I'm not trying to necessarily be pro-feudalism, but the kind of outlaw setup that Mance is suggesting would represent a clear danger to the northern folk, even if the reality of the free folk did not match the propaganda of old Nan's tales. As much as I like Mance, I felt he was either asking too high a price from John for this agreement if he seriously wanted the watch at Castle Black to stand down. This email is not me chiding anyone for being pro-wilding, I just wanted to share some of my thoughts on the Mance Raider proposition. Pleasant weeks and weekends to you both! 
in best regards, I'm also going to extend, I'm sharing those pleasant weeks and weekends wishes to all the rest <laughs> of you listeners. I think I'm allowed to do that. I'm amplifying it. Oh, yeah. Pat would let you. He would be very happy if you did that. Here are Pat's best wishes. Pat makes great points, and we did talk about this a little bit then. I think it's very important to recontextualize this email now. I'm not going to try to sass you too much, Pat. Uh, It's funny. I thought we had already answered this because I have a clear argument in my head sassing Pat, and I never forget a good Pat sass is what I told him. Like, I just don't. So I had to make sure we didn't actually answer it. We didn't. Recontextualizing this with how they meet Tormund, and especially with how Bowen Marsh speaks about the free folk and Selador uh, and Yarwick in this episode, how they speak about the free folk and their people in this. It's hard. I I think a few chapters ago, I might've agreed a little more, but I think the biggest part of this is that it's a spark, right? And that's what they needed. They needed a spark. Mance coming South. No, he didn't have a plan of assimilating his people. And yes, I agree. That's not good. They have to assimilate kind of into life. Yes. The North is more wild, but I mean, you can't just come in and just raid and reeve and decide you have a new nice home. That's when you get given the Iron Islands with no resources, you know, Uh, to have a fertile home, to have a real home. Yes, there have to be rules. That's part of that societal contract we talk about all the time in feudalism. You know, you, you do this and the Lord will protect you and grant you certain perks and amenities. Um, And Mance was never going to say yes to that. He was never going to bow to the man, right? We've heard enough from him. He was never going to do that. But him coming south with his people was a spark that ignited the chance for freedom for all of them, which is what I kind of think is really important. Freedom, obviously, from the others and freedom to have new opportunities. And a lot of people don't really have a choice against the others to forward some new, you know, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go south and we're going to buy some dresses and we're going to chill And we're going to beg for some land and hope the Night's Watch takes us in and do whatever we can to get in their good side. That was never going to be his plan, right? Uh, Even if he had the time to make a plan where it was a little more normalized, it just never was. But it's about that spark, and it's about getting them to the wall and getting his people out of the cold and into hope. A chance. Yeah, I agree with all that, and I appreciate that Pat is trying to bring a more nuanced view to this. To us freedom fighters on the podcast. (laughs) I I, I think that it's hard because my point of view of the whole situation is so colored by, and we'll talk about this in a bit, with Bowen Marsh and the way that he speaks of the wildlings. And I think Mm -hmm. that what you're seeing here is conflict that's born out of limited resources. And those resources in this moment happen to be the land south of the wall safety there and that clashing of different cultures and like you said i it's not just assimilation there's concessions on both sides right that's how there's compromising and peace getting to know one another as people and by seeing each other as people learning to adjust and work to live together and i think that's hard that's why there's a lot of violence today right like it's not as simple as that. A lot of these things are much more complicated, but the others, I don't think it's as simple as some have pointed out that they are standing as a metaphor for climate change. I don't think that's the case at all. But of mm-hmm. course, there is an aspect and shade to that as well. And I, that's what I'm thinking of right now, right? Especially in this cultural, political, like environmental moment in our world, because as climate change, for example, an outside force, right? makes it more difficult for certain groups of people to live where they do 
creates more disasters, destruction, right? That leads to limited resources and rising conflict. And I think that you you see that in the, this storyline a little. It's one way to examine that that story. And I think that as we see throughout John's chapters, it's addressing one aspect of when George keeps talking about Aragorn's top tax policy. He's like, what happened to all the baby orcs? All right. And <laughs> that's what he's trying to say here. Like, yes, some of the wildlings, some of them are violent, like Rattleshirt, who sucks. But what about all the rest of them, the women, the men, and the children who are not, who are not like that? And I mean, the lack of children. Right. Like you yes. said, as you look around, they've all died. They have no future. These people have burnt their gods, their future, all at a chance of getting south. And not all of them are violent. Not all of them are those people. And then at the same time, I mean, Stannis came north looking for an enemy to prove himself, right? And Stannis' settling of the, the free folk in the north and making that deal with them, it's it wasn't out of the goodness of his heart. It wasn't to bring peace between people. It was because he had nothing better to do. And this was the task in front of him. Yeah. You know, it wasn't, uh, it was defend the wall and come north against, you know, Mance's big armies, but really it was a chance at exerting power. Yeah, it was an exhibition of power. That's also what I was thinking. It wasn't planned. It wasn't like, let me think about how the free folk can best benefit the realm and fit in. It was, yes, well, build my castle better at the night fort. Yeah. Whereas John is thinking of, like, all right, what can I do to make the free folk fit in better and help them contribute? It's a complex situation, and it hasn't even been solved in real life, right? I don't Absolutely. expect George to come up with a magical, beautiful answer in his story. To do so would be unrealistic. And to be fair, I think that George does show us the closest thing to an answer that we all have. For this uh, group of people fiction. in this world, yes. Yeah, I mean, in general in this story, he shows humanity, right? He shows yeah. people that bind together because of humanity. You know, the lone wolf. Yeah. The lone wolf dies, but the pack survives. Humanity, and you see it in shows like The Good Place. You see it in a lot of different media these days that there is something good in humanity, something that is inherently good deep within our soul that wants to help other people and does well when we are helped. And it, it, there's a line that always rang with me from the show that wasn't in the books, but Mira Reed says it. And, you know, it's that line about helping people mm -hmm. and how people will always need to be helped. It doesn't mean they're not worth helping. Yeah. I know it's a show line, but I feel like it really kind of captures that. Like, that's the only solution that we know as humanity. And for now, banding together and protecting your fellow person and trying to understand where the shoes have been. Yeah. I think that's the best you can do. Yeah, exactly. It's seeing other people as people. I was that's when you start losing humanity, when you stop seeing them as people. And I think that's something that's yeah probably going to be highlighted for Daenerys as she goes forward um, and how she views different things. I mean, we see her as a person of the people right now. What's going to happen going forward when she comes back as the dragon? Will she change? Will Jon change when he comes back from the dead? There's a lot of these questions up in the air of personalities and what they'll be like and what changes people. You see Lady Stoneheart consumed by this vengeance cat who repressed so much in her life in the society that was sexually shameful uh you know just shamed her and she was brought up in it and it slaughtered her right it it took her like a, a lamb to the slaughter yeah she went in she married a dude he got his head chopped off she gave up everything for i mean like she shed some tragedy shit all because she couldn't love a motherless child no i hated that <laughs> line for sure. 
I had to. I had to put it in there for you, just for you. <laughs> you but yeah, like you there's just so many. Had to bring balance to the force. One good line from the show, one bad one. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You get me. But that's these characters. That's how you understand these characters and what they're about. And I think it's just a delicate balance to the force, like you said, George. Uh, like another George <laughs> oh my has. God. Written delicate balance, and I came full oh, circle. Thank you, you thank you. Yeah, I don't think Daenerys will necessarily stop, stop seeing others as people. I think it'll be more along the lines of there's that line right in in the Game of Thrones when the Dothraki are pillaging one of the other towns, and she says, "This is the price of the Iron Throne," and that's what she's telling herself. And it'll yep. be less the idea that they're not human, more the idea of this is a necessary sacrifice or price, a la Stannis. So. Well, and that's more what I mean, not them. I'm talking about yeah. the others. I mean, the, not the others. The other others, the people, the humans, the other humans. The humans aren't <laughs> under her the f- army and command. The fleshy, meaty humans who are not made of ice. Yeah. Well, speaking of Daenerys, she is starting off our lightning round today. Yes, Daenerys commands those affected by the bloody flux to be cleaned up by her people and refuses to give his dar his wedding wish of opening the fighting pits. Later, she learns that buying peace from the Yunkai is not quite so easy, and neither is denying Dario Naharis's purple mustachioed dick. I think it's it's his. It's canon. No, his mustache is gold. His dick has a mustache too, though. Is it purple? And are you saying that the curtains don't match the drapes sometimes? I mean, they no, change. No, because the- so his mustache is gold, his hair and his beard, though, are blue, so it's fascinating if he's chosen one different other color for his The three heads? Dick. Well, I mean, yes, but sometimes it's purple, he changes it. He changes his him. dye. I know, and honestly, if you bleach your hair that badly, you should change your dye. <laughs> like, you should get the most out of your color. Anyways, the Prince of Winterfell- you're invited to a wedding between the North's prize gem, Ramsay Bolton, nay Snow, and his bride, Lady Arya Stark, nay Jane Poole. Oh Wait God. a second, what? <laughs> After what's sure to be a pride-inspiring ceremony, check out the display of abuse and horror at the end. Damn. Yeah, it sucks. Those Theon chapters were a trek. That was a trip. It's a little traumatizing, truly. It is. The Watcher. Balin Swan's arrival in Dorne is met with lies and Dornish gold. Or swill. <laughs> he drinks them down well. Doran reveals the Dornish master plan, but not the Dornish quote master quote. plan. Oh my god. What, what do you mean? Don't you think Doran has a... Anyway, so John 8. In John 8, John sets Vale off on a RPG quest to bring back a giant's babe, then has to treat with three wise men later himself. Yes, I get. I still cannot get over that. For a while, I forgot. Like people thought it was Giant's Bane. It's Giant's Babe. Hell yeah, it's Giant's Babe. Yeah. So the chapter begins with Val wrapped up in bearskin at the gate, with a half-blind Garen awaiting her, and Molly and Ed are guarding her. Val is cool with the half-blind horse though, because she knows where to go. John's like, you don't have to go. You can stay here and be really comfortable in your tower, where you know you have men guarding you from being raped even though they could too so we don't know you could just like not go but if you did you do know the forest better than anyone so <laughs> and you do know Dorman better than anyone so it'd be great so if you, you kind of have to go sweet for me in fact like yeah. i john snow can't actually ask you to do this yeah. but if you say you're going to i could just be like stannis she's very willful like that's yeah. the whole feel here and it'd be really yeah. great if you came back with Dorman too that'd be sick 
Real good for me. He's not, like, actually worried, worried for her, but he is worried when it concerns the others, because they are afoot. They are. They're there, and she knows it. But I do like this line that Val says, right, of the woods not harboring any ghosts for her, as it does for Men of the Night's Watch. And on one hand, yes. This is the land she grew up on. Like, why would any of the ghosts be mad about her returning to it but on the other i do i'm thinking about this in the context of ned who is actually one of the ghosts that haunts john's story because ned as you all remember from the chapters who dad you know dad (laughs) he was haunted by the ghosts of people that he lost and like that he couldn't save he was haunted by a lot of ghosts in his own home and i kind of wonder like does val not feel that way about dala she feels that a little bit about Jarl, Jarl, of whom she asked John, like, so what happened with him? Or maybe she just feels comfort, right, that Dala is out there. Or maybe she thinks that Dala died not really in the woods and wrongly out here. I don't know. Or maybe D- Val just goes through the five stages of grief, like, gets to acceptance way faster than any of us do, which is fine. I commend that. I do think it's a lot of displacement, right? Like, she's been made to flee her home. The, the real woods that she knew. The wall is where Jarl died. Mm-hmm. That's where her ghosts yeah. are. She doesn't want to be here at Castle Black. She doesn't want to see that big hulking hunk of ice and think about everyone they lost. Yeah. Not just Jarl, but the people before that went trying to range and trying to figure out how they could get their people to safety. Um, her brother-in-law-esque thing that she doesn't know is still alive. Yeah. I mean, saving Tormund might be a great thing for her in her mind, right? Like saving these people, a big portion of her people could be with Tormund. Tormund and his kids, like she knows these people. Yeah. They're families. They were, they have cookouts in the summer. Snows. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, you want to have this rack of a snow beast? Yeah, Tormund. Come on over, Torwind. Yeah. Tormund's like a friend to her. She, he was there in the tent at the beginning. Yeah. Cracking jokes, ruining plans. (laughs) Making things work well Well, for John, but yeah. (laughs) Val is stocked up with food for this trip. She plans to return by the next full moon. The moon's currently half full, and their goal, of course, as we kind of spoiled, is Tormund and getting him to the cause. And then we get this passage from John. Do not fail me, he thought. I feel like you're not committing to the John voice right now. It's just like we talked about that for review, and now I'm self-conscious. Oh, I think we need to commit. You guys, we got a four-star review on iTunes that didn't like my John voice, and I understand, but it's not like my fault. Eliana makes me. I do. I literally stop her every time, and I make her do it. Like, at the beginning, she just, like, did that as a one-off, but I was like, no, Chloe, you gotta do it. It's not her fault. It's really mine. It's my podcast, and I like to bring joy into my life, and this brings me joy. Do not take this from me. Do not foul me, he thought, or Stannis will have my head. Are you happy? Yes, thank you. Do I have your word that you will keep our princess closely? The king had said, and John had promised that he would. Val is no princess, though. I told him that half a hundred times. It was a feeble sort of evasion, a sad rag wrapped around his wounded word. His father would never have approved. I am the sword that guards the realms of men. John reminded himself, and in the end, that must be worth more than one man's honor. The road beneath the wall was as dark and cold as the belly of an ice dragon and as twisty as a serpent. Two things. First thing. 
that I want to bring up is that this is the passage that I won't stop quoting for the past, like, 20 chapters with the eye of the sword that guards the realms of men, John reminded himself, and in the end, that must be worth more than one man's honor. That's it. This is the quote. This is the chapter. Everyone ear horns. It's not the chapter. This is John. This is John's story. This is it. This is him. But yeah, that's literally the whole thing. Like, that's his circle. That's his arc. Here's the start. Here's the finish. We did it. But then... I love this language of the road beneath the wall was as dark and cold of the belly of an ice dragon and as twisty as a serpent. I also was waiting for like the third part to be and as stabby as a dagger in the dark. <laughs> like I was like, ah, ah, where's it going? Because it felt like it was going to John's cold ice dragon belly with a dagger. Yeah, it, it does feel like that, especially with the whole belly. I thought it too. I was like, oh, but they did use the word belly, I guess. Stomach, whatever. Same thing. It's literally the same thing. I I also like this quote in the exchange because between John letting Val go and the reminder that John switched the babies, which we're going to get to in a second, I think what we're seeing is that in regards to Stannis, the people who admire Stannis, maybe even the most, are also those who are most likely to go behind his back and disobey him. You got John and you got mm-hmm. Davos, and they both have very good reasons for doing this thing because they're afraid that Stannis is going to sacrifice the children, or like John has his reason of, well, it'd be really sick if we could get Tormund over here and more people on the side of the living, you know, not on that side, where they might die more likely. And later in this chapter, we're going to see a couple of other characters, and it's like those who are most likely to actually follow Stannis and obey his wishes mm-hmm. are portrayed as the ones who are least honorable in terms of how honor is portrayed to the reader, not chivalric slash the social honor within the terms of Westeros. Because, like, the folks that John meets with in a bit, like, they're all scandalized at John for disobeying Stannis later in this chapter, but they're the ones who, like, don't like Stannis and aren't jazzed about him and all, and we're like, John should be, like, really be hanging out with Stannis. And like, oh, how dare you go against Stannis' orders? Like, chill out, bro. They're obviously looking for, like, anyone to be a leader except John. Um, yeah. <laughs> they're like, but what about that guy that was here for that couple day from corporate? That dude? Yeah, you mean, John, um, you mean my other dad? My sixth dad. <laughs> Which dad? I, I like what you said, though, about, like, those are the ones who go against him. And Davos and John obviously have a good moral compass for the most part, right? They have a good head-ish on their shoulders. Well, thankfully, their heads are both still attached, for all we know, as far as the Winds of Winter goes. But they do have good heads on their shoulders. And it makes me think about what we're going to see in the Winds of Winter and A Dream of Spring when it mm-hmm. comes to the people counseling Daenerys. Like... Tyrion and Davos and Jon, presumably. Um, it's going to be really interesting to see how they analyze her plans when we get that first hand in those POVs. Yeah. And like, Tyrion and Jorah don't necessarily have her best interests in mind. No, but Davos is going to be interesting. If he does end up advising Danny in some sort of fashion, yeah. I'm interested to see what he thinks of this girl because we don't see Davos regard woman besides Melisandre in any weird way. The Melisandre thing is probably, again... Just like with John, I'm sure when we get to Davos, we'll look at that and say, oh, this is probably what he'll see about Danny." That'd be interesting. Oh, that's going to be very interesting. I if can't that, wait for that. Yeah. Because how many times does he regard Melisandre as like this terrible, fiery woman? I mean, like his first impression of Melisandre was what? Her burning his gods and then 
poisoning an old. Mm-hmm. She didn't poison Crescent. Technically, Crescent was like, "We're both doing this," but like, it's not. <laughs> it's not the best first impression, you know. <laughs> no bad first impressions, and like, obviously, you and me were like, "Melisandre, girl, we get you're in a hard position and not making great choices all the time, but doing the best you can." Uh, ish, and <laughs> I, I get it. The, whatever. This, I do think she is trying to do the best she can. Yeah. How good that is, we don't know. We'll figure it out. We'll find out in the the next few books. <laughs> A few books. Dolores Ed leads them as Molly opens the gate, which lets Val out, and she surveys the land ahead, and she tastes the air. She says it tastes sweet. John is like, I can only taste the cold. Ah, mm. well, good news about your further chapters. Yeah, he never and felt the fourth. The cold? Life? He's disquieted by his missing rangers who have still not returned, He's like, well, obviously they're dead, and now I'm full of guilt, and now I'm sending Val out, and she's probably going to die, too. There's this line about her appearance I love, and it makes me think, too, so get ready. Mm. Buckle up. The light of the half moon turned Val's honey-blonde hair a pale silver and left her cheeks as white as snow. Hmm. 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 That doesn't sound like anyone I know. No, and, okay, look, we all know, according to all of the seasons of Game of Thrones, that... Anytime you're in the north, you're going to look blue. I get it. That's just like, that's literally canon. That's yeah. what HBO and David and Dan taught us, that if you live in the north, you're going to have a blue tinge to your body at all times. So that might be it. But we did talk a lot about the Melisandre and Egret and Danny parallels and similarities as far as scent and fieriness last week. And obviously, it, it's all over. I mean, there's a chapter, Daenerys 10, in a Game of Thrones, I think you know that chapter well, right? You what didn't? Isn't that the one you did for Not a Cast or no? You did chapter nine, so the one right after that, <laughs> there's this line. It's a segue. So the and one right this line, after that, <laughs> the other one that I'm going to quote that's more important right now is Dorea brushed her hair until it fell like a river of liquid silver down her back. They scented her with spice flower and cinnamon. That's straight up. Melisandre as far as spice flour yeah. and cinnamon, right? Like and egret. We spice. talked about this last yeah. week. That's literally, yeah, PSL. But her hair was like a river of liquid silver. Mm-hmm. And there's a ton of cool imagery for Daenerys as well. Not just fiery, not just spice flour and cinnamon. Even as far as her very first chapter, the old woman washed her long silver pale hair and gently combed out all the snags, all in silence. And it's just... Not just her appearance that's described as silver and pale, but Viserys is as well. Viserys should have been conspicuous with his pale skin, silvery hair, and beggar's rags, but she did not see him anywhere. And of course, she's usually associated with fire, but her in the north is going to bring out so much lunar discussion. She's obviously surrounded by stars and moons all the time. She's described as the moon of Caldrogo's life. She watches the stars and moon out in the grasslands in A Dance with Dragons and in the waste. Uh, she stares at the comet. We all know everything's blue. That's what HBO taught me, okay? Dabba dee dabba die. Yes, exactly. This is definitely a nod to what we're going to expect to see of her in the North, you know, as far as imagery. Yeah, I, th- I think that's it's all that and also that John has a type. John's like, I ain't got no type. <laughs> <laughs> points to bad all. bitches is the only thing that I love. Actually, though, starts pointing at like Val and Egret and Danny. Yeah, and what his sister? No. Oh my god! No, your sister. Oh my god. Yes, I agree. 
John reminds Val then of what she must tell Tormund, and they exchange a very intimate goodbye, frost in the air, Val kissing his cheeks, being like, this is foreshadowing for your later love interest, John. She whispers it into his ear. He did he didn't quite catch it, that's why it's not in the chapter. She asks John one last question. If he killed her Jarl. And John responds, no, it was the wall who killed him. And he says that you gotta return sooner or later, right? You have to. I mean, you have to do it for the baby. And she's like, whoa, John, that's not our baby. That's Crasser's kid. <laughs> that's boat baby, actually. <laughs> yeah, she's like, I don't have anything to do with that child. I like that she's smirking this whole time, though. Yes. She's like, yeah, I don't care for this child at all, whatsoever. <laughs> Major Sundari vibes. <laughs> and she feigns disinterest, but John's like, no, you sing to the kid. I heard you. And she's like, no, I was singing for myself. And she's like, all right, no, you're right. I'm singing for the little <laughs> monster, because she's Lady Gaga also. Wait, this came out in 2011. Is it an influence, George? George. 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 Tell us about how Lady Gaga plays a role in the song of ice and fire i love that she does she calls him monster for his milk name she's like well you know he doesn't have a name so i had to give him a fake name that boy is a monster oh my God. yeah well it, it's because they're not allowed to name the children until they're two years old and this is mm -hmm. what's called yeah the milk name until they're allowed to do so in wildling culture it's worth noting that we never see john or any other character tell val about the babies being switched which means she figured it all out on her own. That's kind of a testament to her attention skills, right? But she noticed that her own nephew, of course, her own blood, after all, was switched. So it, I get it. She's, she cares. It's her sister's child. And she might bear no love for Monster across her son, which kind of ends up sticking as a name for him. But I do think... To an extent, she was kind of fine with maybe knowing that Dallas' son was switched, because at least it makes him safer a little bit. And maybe that's kind of Ned-like of her. I don't know. And Ned just like acquiescing to John's decision to be like, alright, I guess you can go to the wall. He wasn't really pleased about it, and he was like displeased with Catelyn, but also he's like, maybe this is better. That way he's like not anywhere near Robert at all. And along with the Val's perceptiveness, I kind of wonder if it had to do with like maybe she's the only one who noticed because of the baby's ages and no one else was really paying attention because Dallas' child would have been a newborn basically at that time whereas Gilly's kid according to a spreadsheet compiled by Westeros users and would probably be about two months older at this time at the time of the birth of Dallas' child and like that doesn't seem like it's a big difference but infant development is like way wilder than i thought based on my coworker's kid who's already like doing stuff i'm like didn't you just bring this child like wasn't that just a baby not doing anything a few weeks ago and she's like yeah no now he's walking <laughs> anyway but like two months some of the differences that would be noticeable are like stronger sucking ability uh if the kid's able to like kind of hold their head up rolling around which shows like more more strength right versus a newborn and kicking more strongly. So, could be that Val saw these and was like, ah, this is different. Well, there's actually a lot to unpack there because he is noted as being pretty big in John 11 later in this book. This is a reread, you guys, so it's not a spoiler. Monster. Uh, John says to Val when she spoilers comes back, because this is a reread, there's no such thing as spoilers. 
Twice as big as when you left us, and thrice as loud. When he wants the tea, you can hear him wail in Eastwatch. That right there is one big thing to look at, that John says that. That's noticeable, right? Mm -hmm. That this kid is like that. However, I think we need to reread that, because this kid is passing as Manson Dallas kid, right? Mm -hmm. So I want to backtrack it, because obviously we know that Monster should be a healthy kid. Craster was a powerful-looking man in his prime, and Gilly's frame is described as being slim, nothing more, nothing less, but she's probably not short by any Mm -hmm. means, and she probably is a little curvaceous. Mance is only of middling height, and he's broader in the chest and shoulders, but no means is he described as burly or thick. And Dalla, as she's similar to Val, is likely more slender and curvy and lean, Mm -hmm. and Monster's a big boy, and he's also been known to be dominant on the titties. So let me take you to Samwell 1 in A Feast for Crows, because this is an interesting exchange. Gilly and Sam are talking in the courtyard, and Gilly says, Dalla's boy, he cries when he wants the tea. Mine? Mine hardly ever cries. Sometimes he gurgles, but her eyes fill with tears. I have to go. It's past time I fed them. I'll be leaking all over myself if I don't go. She rushed across the yard, leaving Sam perplexed behind her. Now, let's use what we know about this scene. We know Gilly's upset because of the baby switching, right? Mm-hmm. But she just told Sam that her baby hardly cries and that it was Dallas' boy that cried in the middle of the night because he cries when he wants the teat. Yeah. But while Val's gone, it's Monster crying for the teat. Right in this scene, Gilly's playing off that Hearst doesn't cry because she knows the journey ahead requires the belief that the baby they have is her own, not Eamon Steele's song. Oh. Yup. I put this together today and I was like, oh shit, because Monster is crying now. Yeah, yeah, she's trying to sell the lie. I see. That's a really good point. That's super sad. Yup. It's not even just like... No one asked for this information from her. She's just trying to volunteer it, right? To She's trying to do what John told her to do. She's afraid. It. Yeah. And, oh, man. Yeah, it's and sad. And every time she does it, she just remembers. That's the saddest. And I'm worried about Monster. I'm worried about that boy all the time. I don't know why. Why would you be worried about him? So, uh, speaking of people being worried for him, Val tells John to keep Monster safe for Gilly's sake as well as her own, and to keep Monster away from the Red Woman because she sees all. She thinks that Melisandre knows. Yeah, and there's this back and forth. She sees things in her fires. Arya, he thought, hoping it was so. Ashes and cinders. Kings and dragons. Who? Whomst? What does it mean? What does it mean? Dragons again. For a moment, John could almost see them, too, coiling in the night, their dark wings outlined against a sea of flame. I love that line. Yeah. It's some good work. Good job, George. And I can't wait to see them, like, outlined in darkness with their wings against a sea of flame. Is that a brief dragon dream? I don't know. Maybe. John the Drunken? It wouldn't be surprising if, like, because he ha- sees some things right through ghosts a little. Yeah, it wouldn't be surprising. I mean, he has a seer gene, so... John expresses doubt. It's Melisandre doing all, because, like, I got away with it. And Val's like, I don't know that you did, all right? Then he's like, then why would she just let me go? And Val says, fire is a fickle thing. No one knows which way a flame will go. I loved this line, but immediately the first thing I thought of today when I read it was, 
Every time a new Targaryen's born, he said, the gods toss the coin in the air, and the world holds its breath to see how it will land. No one knows which way a flame will go. Anyway, the wind blows. Doesn't really matter to Danny Or Quentin, because he's dead. Yeah, I think that's absolutely part of what she's referencing. Also, yeah. Now I'm just like, George, I see it. I I still don't think she's going to be mad. We've discussed it. No, I don't think mad. I don't think that rule is true anyways. I think it's stupid because we know what contributed to Ares. We know Duskendale. I mean, obviously he had tendencies before, but when tendencies get pushed and push comes to shove, when your feet are raked over the coals, no pun intended. Yeah. Val then reminds John of some of the last things that Dalla told him, of a sword without a hilt. But he thinks that Melisandre is still right. Maybe some magic is better than none. And so then he watches Val go, and Ed says, That girl's crazy because the air is cold and not sweet. True. True, Big Ed. Mood. Like, it's like the cold where your nostrils freeze. If you guys have never been to a place where your nostrils freeze, where you get very thin shards of icy glass in your nose, you no. don't know. I don't want that feeling, but also, I will say, sometimes I think that cold weather is better for a hangover. I like cold weather better than hot weather, only because you can put more clothes on. You can't take more off. No. We're going to rehash this argument every every episode. Every episode. Yep. Molly asks John if he knows what the men are saying of him for letting Val go, and John's like, yes, I know what kind of shit they're talking. They're calling me a half-wildling turncloak who's selling the realm to raiders, cannibals, and giants. And inside his head, John's like, well, they're not wrong. But uh, Molly's like standing there and he's like, Molly, words are wind. So the Night's Watch calling John half a wildling and of course him always being a crow to the wildlings, right? It's the same as how John never felt stark enough being the bastard kid. But everyone else still sees him at, at the Night's Watch. He's never like fully... A member of the Night's Watch. He, he is for like all of five minutes and they're like, you're half wildling. Or they're like, nope, you're a little lordling Stark. And they, he's never truly one thing. And that's still part of John's identity crisis. And again, we keep saying it. It's going to get worse. You're going to get even more confused, John. It's going to be sick. God, poor John. Oh, it sucks. And that's the thing is he's rejected from the place that was supposed to deal with him, right? Like, this is the last place you send your kid. Because they don't come back from this place. They stay there forever. So, like, this was it. This was the last chance. Nailed it. Nailed it. And John should have been more of a nerd and just become a macer. Yeah, fucked up, John. You fucked up. <laughs> should have been like us. <sighs> John thinks about the emptying woods and how there's no animals to eat in them. And he's like, wow, we might never see a spring again. We might never see a spring again. <laughs> Ed brings food back to John. It's three duck eggs in drippings, bacon, sausages, blood pudding, and half a loaf of bread. That's a feast. This is a feast. Right? It sounds good, too. He eats the bread and half an egg, and then the raven takes his bacon, and he's like, thief, and the bird's like, yeah, I agree, except really that just means they go, thief! (laughs) Do you remember how there was a constellation a bit ago? Constellation of the thief and the moon maid. Or is it milkmaid? I don't remember. It's a milkmaid. Milkmaid. Anyway, so I, I am like, wow, three eggs. Three oh. eggs of the duck gun. I didn't even notice the three duck eggs. 
That's so funny. It's probably not significant, but... No, I I think he did it on purpose, that bastard. I think about John's food all the time and how much food he's not eating and wasting. Eat your food, John. But also three eggs. Okay. Well, Ed returns to John with Bowen Marsh, Othel Yarwick, and Septon Celador, and he's like immediately in his head. He's like, oh great, people are talking. There must be more than several yarns being spun downstairs. And uh, Septon Zelador is confused. He's groggy. Othal Yarwick looks like he's digesting something that's not digestible. And Bowen Marsh is angry, per use. And John offers them food and drink, which the men are agreeable towards. They're like, yes, I'll take your food. So at least he's A, remembering his manners, which if you're the boss of someone, I know my company at work has this rule. It's unspoken, unsaid. But like, if you take out an inferior person that doesn't make as much money as you, you should probably, you know... Give them food, too. Yeah, Pay for them. Out. Yeah. So he does offer them food and drink. They're agreeable. But also, especially since he's been talking about it a little bit in this book, I think this is a big guest right thing right here. He offers them his meat and mead, and they accept it. It's a bond. Yeah, and I mean, it's smart to do so based on everything that's been going on. It's not a guarantee, but... He's trying to obviously show them he means good. He's open to chatting about some of the things he's been doing, and yeah. he knows they're here to bitch him out, and he's here to take it, you know, just bend over yeah. and take it. So it reminds me of the conversation he has with Mance in A Storm of Swords, John 1, where he says that if Mance had been discovered in the hall in Winterfell, and Mance says, well, my head would have been cut off by your dad, but once I had eaten at his board, I was protected by guests, right? The laws of hospitality are as old as the first men and sacred as a heart tree. And then later in that passage, there's this little sentence that I just feel kind of goes with uh, the next thing I'll talk about, which is, Guest writer no, Jon Snow knew he walked on rotten ice here. One false step and he might plunge through into cold water enough to stop his heart. Weigh every word before you speak it, he told himself. He took a long drought of mead to buy time for his answer. So... Of course, the very end in John's last chapter in the whole entire series, since he's dead forever and there's no coming back. Then Bowen Marsh stood there before him, tears running down his cheeks. For the watch, he punched John in the belly. When he pulled his hand away, the dagger stayed where he had buried it. In a way, Marsh kind of broke guest right. Did he partake of? Yeah. Marsh agrees. Here. Here, yeah. I mean, it's not the same as, like, coming to a feast, but obviously we'll get to it and talk about it in a bit, because I do want to come back to this with some of the stuff that happens in this chapter, because there's huge setup going on in this chapter. I mean, this is huge setup for the very last chapter for John. Yeah, I think it's what you said, and it's George's way of sort of trying to up the ante from the Red Wedding, right? Yeah. Because that was kind of opposing. Like, we, we all knew that the phrase were suspect, right? Opposing... And betraying Rob and Catelyn. So John's just next in line of the Starks to be betrayed, I guess. And it's so funny because in rereading it and seeing how John's so wary of everything after what happens to J.R. Mormont, you're like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, it's Idiot. so obvious. But at the same time, like, that's what it is. It's, it's as opposed to it being a suspect o- opposite faction, it's his own men. Yeah, and I think that's what makes it so big right like yes the phrase were technically 
Rob's own men, but not really. He knew he didn't have the phrase, right? Like, he knew Walder was a bitch-ass bitch. Everyone knew Walder was a bitch-ass bitch. He just, like, crossed his fingers and hoped he caught him on the right day. Yeah. Whereas, like, in all of these chapters, right, John keep, keeps kind of joking at it, but I don't know if it's really a joke or not, but he keeps being like, well, if you don't like what it is, then you're gonna get a chance at a new Lord Commander, and what he's saying is, like, then you're all just gonna have to off me, and Bo and Marsh is like, alright, bet. But <laughs> Auntie up. <laughs> yeah. So. And then John invites them all to get it off their chest. Alright, you guys are here about Val, right? And they're like, yes, but also other things. Here are my list of grievances. And John's like, okay, but first, I too have concerns. <laughs> Total boss card, dude. Yeah. Yeah, he pulls the, you can't bring me complaints without offering some improvements as well card that bosses like to play. LOL. And uh, Othel, I hate that so much. It's like, you're the boss, fuck you. And (laughs) says to Othel, how's the work at the Night Fort? You know, the sacrifice den. Selyse is unhappy with her quarters and she wants to move in, according to Axel Florent, her hand. Because she has a hand. She does. Lord knows why. Lord of Light knows why. So Yarrick responds that, yeah, we actually have most of it restored and restored and we're roofing the kitchen uh Celise could maybe be happy with the remodeling maybe but it'll be like a few years before we finish the garage and the guest house and turn it into a proper castle he's like i think we could do it though with more builders john is like well you're in luck because i have a vegetarian giant named one one and he has tireless strength and he can do the work of a dozen men but Othel declines, saying the other men would not like this 10-foot illegal alien around them, and John is happy because he likes 1-1, and he likes to learn about his history and culture while speaking to him and Leathers, and wishes Sam could write it all down. Yeah, Othel's being like a huge dick here. Yeah. And the text is actually telling us this, because the way this is all constructed is very noteworthy. It's priming the reader for how they should read, A, this interaction with Othel, and B, all of the other suggestions and exchanges in this conversation. Because when these three men bring up their grievances, they're all based on misunderstandings, but most of all, they're based on prejudice. Because John thinks this, and he immediately is like, oh, it's really interesting, because one one and the giants, turns out they don't really eat meat at all. They can down a shit ton of roots. He loves vegetables. And then Yarrick's excuse of verbatim, what he says while he's stuttering and telling John, like, oh no, I don't want a giant, is, giants eat human flesh, I think. And John's like, uh, alright. And he never bothers to correct him on this, fascinatingly. But that the men get something, like, as big as this, pun intended... As always, it's always intended. Uh, Wrong shows that the rest of their concerns are all very misplaced in terms of the bigger picture. And I think that this is most obvious with Satin, in my opinion, but we'll get to that in a second. We also have this other quote of that was not to say that he was blind to the danger one one represented. The giant would lash out violently when threatened, and those huge hands are strong enough to rip a man apart. He reminded John of Hodor. Hodor, twice as big, twice as strong, and half as clever. There's a thought to sober even Septon Celador. But if Tormund has giants with him, one wig, one der, one may help us treat with them. So there's a line in this, uh, huge hand strong enough to rip a man apart. 
Is this some Hodor foreshadowing for protecting Mm. Bran in the cave? I think what makes it dark is I feel like Hodor wouldn't want to do that. Yeah, I feel like that too. And I know the show covered it a little of Bran uh, getting into his skin a little bit to get him to move. Um, And I know we're going to see that a little deeper as we go along. However, I don't know. I just felt like that line in talking about Hodor was so interesting here and so connected. I don't know. I think so. I think that's something to to remind you of how strong he is. To note, Ed returns with eggs and sausages and wine, and Marsh impatiently waits for him to leave. I know, I wish Ed would come here with all that. Yeah. Marsh disapproves of some of the other actions John has been taking, like sending away Ed and Iron Emmett, who are well-liked and great to staff the castle, replacing them with Leathers, the Savage, as Master at Arms. He's upset the office isn't being filled by an ex-knight or someone well on the path to mastery in arms. John agrees Leathers is Savage, and not as patient as he'd like, but that his strength and resolve may be important to teach men before, you know, the big one happens someday, and by the big one I mean the fight against the others, for everyone's life. And Marsh is like, but he's a wildling. And John's like, he's our brother. He said the words. He can teach swordcraft. And John then counters, it wouldn't hurt them to learn some of the old tongue and the ways of the free folk. And Marsh argues, the men don't trust him. John wants to question that, but he knows it's not going to do him any good at this point. So he asks for more complaints instead. In John's defense, None of the new men or any of the new recruits trusted Alistair Thorne because he was a dick. Alistair Thorne was bad for morale. I think Leathers is better for morale. I understand Iron Emmett was chill too. He seemed like a chill ass dude. Also, I agree. John should have sent them elsewhere. Yes and no. I I, I think that there's merit. We haven't been making this argument. Uh, We've brought it up every now and then. John should have sent Iron Emmett away not because he should have kept a knight or master at arms, but because John needed allies. Yes, if he had kept Amongst the some Watch. of his other allies, we probably yeah. wouldn't have had this issue, but the problem is that he didn't, and so sending everyone away is indeed bad. Now, that being said, I mean, John's just trying to strengthen the Watch. Yeah. He doesn't realize what he's doing, but he's trying to strengthen the Watch while, unfortunately, uh, you know, weakening it. Weakening what, his Weakening role. himself, yeah. Uh, At what cost? At what cast? Celador then says that the boy John needs to make his steward and squire satin. He's like, ew, we don't want a male sex worker. Oh no. And then he uses the term he's a painted catamite from the brothels of Old Town. And John's like, yeah, well, you're a fucking drunk. He doesn't say it aloud, but he thinks it. <laughs> and he's like, you guys really don't get the whole all your sins are forgiven and now your brother the Night's Watch thing, do you? Like, like, that's the whole thing, and none of you will fucking get it. Yeah, all of you. Like, a bunch of you were traitors. But how do you think this works? Y'all should be dead. You didn't come to the wall just because, like, someone was like, send my son who's so great. Like, yeah. it's like Bowen Marsh. This isn't a boys' club. Like, you know, well, it is. But this isn't, like, is. your boys' club is the thing. It's over for you. No more scheming. Like I said earlier, this is the last place people send their children. One person was like, you can have my son because he's so great, but also it was the last place. And that was, that was Bronzeon Royce. Yep. He was, like, the last one who felt that way. To I be think. fair, Waymar was a little, like, I don't oh, know. Oh, yeah. A little much. Like, he probably was like, please just take him, let him be honorable and stop, like, being annoying and putting on plays at home. Yeah, make him stop being, I don't know, acting like he's a shit. Yeah. Like, you're right. <laughs> 
And also, I don't know, we've been seeing it throughout John's chapters, especially like in his dealings with Marsh, but it is more pronounced here, right? Like how he thinks, you know, to sell about Celador, like being a drunk, right? He'll think one thing, have that flash of a thought, then say something more courteous that actually like makes sense and is not insulting. And I think John realizes he needs to do this kind of appeasing and cajoling to get people on his side. Like, you know, you brought up how John thought about asking them like oh which of the men have problems with this but then he doesn't actually do it mm-hmm. he's like that's not gonna get me anywhere and we actually see him do this in his interactions with stannis as well yeah i think that dissonance between the interiority and the exteriority is supposed to show us politicking but george also uses it to great effect in a lot of the other character povs like we see it in Sansa and Arya's chapters a lot it's mostly used for survival in in hiding their true thoughts and Sansa's story though that is always tinged with a bit of like that courtesy aspect that's a big part of her story and Theon's which we covered intensely uh it's used to show that disparity between his inner self and the identity that's been forced on him like between Theon and Reek and how those like even clash internally right uh with John I think there's an aspect of some of what he thinks in his interiority that I sometimes think personally I'm like I think Stannis would have said that aloud to someone. He would have yeah. he would have straight up told that man he's drunk or been like, "Who who's saying this? All right, this is what we're gonna do with them." But also, like the difference is Stannis wasn't like John, right? He wasn't ever a bastard. Like, yeah, he might have felt like ostracized he was, or yeah, he felt ostracized and shunned. But as we see with the way all these people right now are like trying to stay in his good graces, and he's not even there, and are worried about what he's gonna do, like. Sure, he was never king or firstborn, but he had enough power that people wanted to cater to him. And I think that's that and like his aspect of just saying saying that shit like is probably also why he's not great at making fast friends and allies, but whatever. Right. It's the same thing as what Rhaenyra versus Aegon the Second. Like Stannis and Redley, both of them sucked, but Aegon the Second had a better PR team. Yeah. Which isn't saying yeah. much, they all sucked. But <laughs> I mean, like Rhaenyra obviously uh after a while, she just didn't need to want to play nice. I mean, good for her. I wouldn't have either. But <laughs> same with Stannis. He doesn't play nice. There's no playing for Stannis. For Stannis, there's none of this politicking in between breaths and thinking about it. It's, well, why would he do that? I would do this because I'm Stannis. Uh, for John, yeah. especially with that, I mean, there's that tick in the back. Every every couple paragraphs, you're reading Egret in the back of his head and him thinking, you know nothing, Jon Snow. Yeah. yeah. At the same time as he's internally berating all these guys, he's, he's berating internally- himself. Exactly. Which is <sighs> mood. Oh, John. John tells the men that Satin's quick, he's clever, he reads and he writes, and also he's your brother. <laughs> Play fucking nice. Yeah, Mom John said so. Marsh pipes up and he's like, Traditionally, the squire of the Lord Commander is a boy of good birth, being groomed for command. You can't honestly believe the Night's Watch would follow a sex worker into battle. So much to unpack there. So much. Obviously, the stigma on sex work. But beyond that, uh, I'm not going to go into that at the wall, because obviously Bowen Marsh isn't that kind of guy that's an ally. (laughs) Um, Obviously, from this Clearly not. But, like, it's... It's like the systems are supposed to stop at the wall, but yet here we are. Yeah. They just like don't seem to get it that the whole point is And here he's he's basically giving up the jig, right? He's yeah. saying like 
that the meritocracy thing was a fucking lie about anyone could become Lord Commander, right? He's telling them, no, he's saying what was basically subtext in book one, bringing it to the forefront now. And also with that, um, starting simple, confirmation that what Sam told John was right. He was being groomed for command. We all knew it, but also confirmation. I mean, not only that, like, anyone can be. John did, and you may all think that, like, oh, John's friends got him in, but no, it was actually most of you guys. Like, that's who got him in. There was no Russians to interfere here. Like, this was just straight up, like... There kind of was. There was Sam. There was. Sam lied to both two parties. But, I mean... Yes, he lied, but also at the same time, it wasn't really lying. It was, like, disinformation, maybe light insider trading. And... He just had some, like, kind of misleading Facebook ads. It was honestly reminded me so much of Harry Potter with the Felix Felicis, right? Like, he just goes out there, he gets results after taking- He's like, I'm gonna down this good luck juice and hope for the best. And, uh, I think that's more of what happened for Sam, right? Like, he went between the parties and was like, please just do the right thing, dudes. Like, you know, lie a little bit, but also, like, just choose John. I don't know. He lied- It, it was just a little bit. It was a lot, but- it was going to last for, like, weeks otherwise, okay? I mean, essentially what Sam did, though, is what we keep hearing in Arianne's chapters, but it's not quite a whole kingdom, but to crown him is to kill him. Yeah, well, as we see. John keeps allowing his temper to flash and tells them some of the worst Night Squatch men that they've had in the past, and that Jor, the previous Lord Commander, had left him some good notes on these past defenders. Like, you know, the guy at Shadow Tower who raped Septas and burnt a seven-pointed star into his flesh for each one he raped, which uh, he has stars up and down him. Or the guy at Eastwatch, who's a real character, who burned his father's house down and barred the door. All nine of his family members died, screaming. Yikes. Big yikes. I love the response to this right here. Septon Salador drank some wine. Oppo Yorick stabbed a sausage with his dagger. Bowen Marsh sat red-faced. The raven flapped its wings and said, Corn! Corn! Kill! Guess John won. Won that one. Won that one, though? Won that one. Won that one dar- one yeah. wag dar- one, one dar wag. Yeah, anyways, so- John won that match, right? Uh, And I love the temper flashing because, you know, we say John's grown and he has, he's grown as a character, but he also just kind of has a deeper voice and he isn't like a showman about his anger now. Like a Game of Thrones, John won. John felt anger rise inside him. I'm not your son. A Game of Thrones, John three. John's anger flared. A Storm of Swords, nine. John swallowed his anger. And then all throughout this chapter, the dragon's awakening is how it feels. And right here in this moment, it was very much so, oh, okay, that was some, like, dragon anger going on. Ooh, John, settle down. Well, it's finally that he's in the position, right, where he's allowed to show some of that anger? And to be fair, like, and really give him some kudos, he controlled it, right? Like, he calmed his anger and he spoke very clearly, and he was just like, I'm gonna end your bitch ass. Yeah, he came back with very logical arguments, Instead of calling them bitch ass, which, I mean, I'm not saying John would be wrong for that. Mm -hmm. Uh, He would be perfectly within his rights. (laughs) Marsh says that John obviously knows best. 
It's basically his version of bless your heart, John. And then he changes to the next topic. All right, so John, tell me about the dead people in the ice cells. Everyone's getting weirded out. Because, you know, reanimation. Yeah, he's like, this is actually definitely bad for morale, John. (laughs) Yeah, your little science experiment. Marsh is like, why are we wasting all these men on guarding them? They're dead. Unless you think, and John finishes his sentence and is like, that they'll rise. <laughs> and then he's like, "Yeah, that's actually what I hope for." And as he says that, I guess Septon Celador dribbles wine out of his mouth. <laughs> she just close your eyes and think about it. Septon Celador dribbles wine. <laughs> oh, I love that part. It's my favorite part of the whole book. But so he's like yelling at John. He's like, "Whites are an abomination, and you can't mean to try to talk to them." And John's like, "I don't know. I'm gonna try to learn as much as I can, though." And he says. They were men before they died. How much remains? The one I slew was intent on killing Lord Commander Mormont. Plainly it remembered who he was and where to find him. A. Bet Thorn and Marsh's whites would find John. I get it. I get it for sure. Uh, and basically I'm imagining these two guys are Chekhov's zombies. At first I was thinking they have to come out during at least like the ruckus after John's death, right? Like, when will we see these guys? A ghost POV? Which, sidebar, starting to feel like a ghost POV makes sense and could work. I don't know what's happening during these chapters. But I digress. These zombies actually serve, of course, as a red herring in John's death, where the show was like, here's your uncle and here's your traitor sign. It's the whites that he thinks are happening and going off. And he's like, oh shit, gotta get the whites. And then he shows up and it's like, no, it's mutiny. Uh, <laughs> no, it's mutiny. <laughs> it's betrayal, John. Try again. Try betrayal. Again. <laughs> oh yes, I agree. Give us the ghost POV, George. Don't be a coward. Woof woof. Woof woof. Woof woof woof. I still, I think that would be great if that was the whole chapter. Woof 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 woof. Yeah. Uh, I would read it. I really would. Um, You'd read gosh. anything at this point. Let's be real. I'm coming up with this stupid idea that's not going to happen, but John's body, while he's not in it, coming back as a white, and then having a white posse, an undead posse, Hmm. not happening. You know, my thought from that was actually that John, uh, before coming back from the dead, goes into other people's dreams, just like in Spongebob, when Spongebob goes into other people's dreams. You're still on this! You guys, Chloe was telling me about the Spongebob episode before we recorded this episode, and I have not internalized Spongebob as well as apparently everyone else in the world. Really, it's just this episode. I mean, he goes in everyone's dream and messes them all up. <laughs> you should take that and put and make a brand theme with that at some point. Uh, John knows that Eamon and Sam would understand what he's doing right here, trying to learn more from the Whites, but they're not here. Also, would they? I think he's like, Eamon would totally get it. He's like, Sam would be like a little freaked out, but also probably get it. (laughs) I think so. My lord father used to tell me that a man must know his enemies. We understand little of the whites and less about the others. We need to learn. So, like, I agree with the idea and the tone. And yes, John, you do need to learn about them. And... Holding them below for a while and maybe throwing rocks at them is his move, though. Like, he's going to the safari zone and using the worst options, is what I'm saying. Eamon isn't coming back. He doesn't know that, but, like, he knows. I'm just putting that out there. 
Come on now. You only get one of these things back, right, John? You only yeah. you can only have you can have Val or you can have Eamon come back. You cannot have both. What about Sam? Add that one to the mix. Hopefully, as we hope true. and think he will be coming back. But there there's three. He wasn't gonna bat for three three for three. Two out of three is yeah. alright. So I mean Eamon was old, alright? One it's out really of three a miracle. is really the thing is, is John doesn't think any of his friends are coming back at this point, and that's fine, but like these dead men are coming back, so he should do what he's good at, which is hit them with a sword or a torch. Just hit them. Like, yeah. these guys are definitely coming back, John. There's nothing you're going to learn from them. I'm sorry. It's not happening. I mean, I think he thought it was going to work out, right? Like, I, I've, spoiler, there's a similar arc with this in Attack on Titan, and I get it. I get it. <laughs> Solidor! I keep wanting to say Solidor's son. Septon Solidor thinks that this is unwise and promises to pray for wisdom for him from the crone for John. And John tells him, yes, you could all use a little wisdom. Everyone's just saying, bless your heart. Bless your heart. Bless your heart. Throughout this entire exchange for all three. And then in the back of his head, he's doing it again. He's thinking, you know nothing, Jon Snow. He sighs and brings up Val, and Marsh is pretty dumbfounded that he let her leave, asking, like, well, bro, what if she lied? Okay, what if she's not coming back? What if something happens to her and she's met with misadventure? And Stannis was all like, yo, don't fuck this up. I really think it's fascinating here, though, coming back to what we were saying earlier, that Celador is so scandalized by the loss of Val and it offending Stannis. Mm -hmm. Because I think it just goes to show you that despite all his talk of piety and faith to the Seven, like, if he really, really gave a shit about it, like, why would he be so quick to acquiesce to the whims of a man who's forcing people to convert to his Red God? Right, that if he's so worried about calling Mother Molowich, why is he not out here preaching against Melisandre right now and calling for the execution of the Queen's men? And I think it's very clear throughout this chapter it's because Salador is a hypocrite. We saw that he was a coward in previous chapters, but he's really it, it really comes to the forefront here. He's concerned only with being near power and upholding those power structures. That's why he's accepting in the faith of the seven and trying to make it work for him as opposed to actually believing i mean that's why they're all here right now right for the most part i mean they're all here because they're worried that their jobs are threatened i think awful yarvik's a little different um like selador son god damn it septon selador is (laughs) kind of a softer like alistair thorn here right by Mm. wanting that proximity to power and upholding those structures. And I don't love Othel Yorick, but I, I, I'm not going to take away his props. Because he didn't support Janos Slint. He wasn't just about like that kind of power that Alistair and Bowen and Celador were like clearly concerned with. And that is coded through their support of Slint. I think Othel Yorick had has some elements to him that I think... He's really superstitious and that gets in the way of his common sense and ends up becoming part of his prejudices against other people. But at the same time, like, there's an aspect of him that's like, well, he's the shitty moderate, all right? Yeah, I mean, honestly, he reminds me of, like, your cute racist grandpa. Yeah. Your cute, drunk, racist grandpa. Yeah. All of them, really. I mean, that's the thing is, all three of them marched down to this office and were like, you're telling me that these illegals are taking our jobs and our lands? 
Like, that's pretty much what this episode right here that's is. what he's doing, and it's all different. <laughs> it It is, though. It, it's all different, like, shades of that, and it's, like... It's all fear-mongering, basically, and that's literally, like, they're all just, like, worked up, like... Well, what about my guns and my ammo? And it just like ups and gets even worse. And we'll get to that at the end of this chapter. Like at first you're like, all right, I'll shut up at the dinner table. Then it like gets real bad. Yeah, like holidays are almost over. And then it's like, no, the holidays are truly not even here yet. It's like, no, let's flip the table now. And I'm like, do it, John, do it. Get ready for the redux of your creepy Uncle Bowen Marsh to talk about Trump for 10 hours. Uh, 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 John responds, hey. You know, you guys might just get to pick a Lord Commander you like, but until then, you gotta suffer me. He tells them he has Val meeting Tormund to go over the Night's Watch Groupon that's currently out. Food, shelter, peace, all if you fight the common enemy and hold the wall. Marsh cannot fathom John letting hundreds of thousands of free folks through the wall, though, saying it's treason to some. Wildlings, savages, raiders, rapers, more beasts than men, these people. And John's like, true, but they are men, and they're all going to have to fight winter, the same as the Watch. He then brings up his own counterpoint. An interesting tale he's heard from the free folk they brought back from the grove of Mother Mole, a woods witch who had a vision of ships carrying free folk safely across the sea. She's led many free folk to Hardhome to pray and await their salvation, because it's a sheltered bay with a natural harbor, and resources like wood and rock and fish and seals are pretty heavy around the town. But it's also a cursed place, according to Yarwick, and John knows the story well. Hardhome had been close to being its own town, the only one north of the Wall, but it was then swallowed by hell 600 years ago. The people were slaughtered for meat or sold into slavery, depending on what you heard, and the homes and halls were consumed in flames so hot, the watchers to the south thought the sun had risen north. We'll dig into that in a bit, but speaking of Mother Mole, I think we touched on her a little bit in our Forgotten Characters Patreon episode, but I do find the inclusion of Mother Mole and how much space she's given in this chapter interesting, especially because, like, both religion and messianic figures, they're different running ideas throughout the book. They intersect a lot, but they're not necessarily the exact same one, and those are going to become much more important to the current political plot of A Song of Ice and Fire, not just as world building, not just as part of the magic plot. Like, it has actual ramifications for the characters and the kingdoms and how they interact with one another. We see it in the King's Moot. Uh, we see it in the spoilers, I'm sorry, everyone, the Forsaken chapter and what Euron does because he fears the power that Aaron has as a respected priest amongst the Ironborn. And the way the people follow Mother Mole into what should be a wasteland in the hopes of salvation, I it reminds me of another figure quite like that towards the beginning of the books. The people following a girl, that prophecy and religion and belief, like they're all going to be thrust onto her, following her into the red waste that no one should have been able to survive. Yeah, and I think that we get such interesting exposition here. Uh, the show obviously did hard home and whatever, it was a thing. Uh, un- it was overrated in my opinion. You can hear more about my really bad opinions on Twitter.com. But <laughs> it just was. It was whatever. Like, they were To me, like, the idea of the lore of it, of the slaves, you know, the slaves that were here and kept here, even in old years and years and years ago, centuries ago, and of course, just that it's a ruin, I mean... 
it looked like a snowy ruin, but what doesn't in the North in the TV show? So uh, especially a description we get that ashes rained down for half a year after Hardhome's devastation and only burnt bones and devastation remained. Swollen corpses in the water, shrieks from caves. And there's a lot of theories about, I don't know, I guess Hardhome, right? Like what happened? It was 600 years ago. When was that? What could have possibly happened? And Holloway Division has one that's pretty... Pretty well loved. I, I do like a lot of Holloway Divisions work just because it makes you think. They have a, a theory called Now I Am Become Death, The Doom of Valyria, and basically talks about how George has written Hard Home to evoke a nuclear detonation, right? Nuclear fallout, raining ashes, catastrophic environmental devastation. It all looks like a nightmare. And they believe that Hard Home was the Trinity test of Song of Ice and Fire. Right? This time the responsible party would have been Death, the destroyer of worlds. And the relevant timeline is 800 years ago, the faceless men come forth, incite a slave rebellion on a fleet of Valyrian ships. The ships flee the wrath of the dragon lords and found the free city of Bravos. 700 years ago, Bravos reveals itself to the world. The faceless men work for hire outside of Bravos, giving the gift, becoming infamous, and collecting their first century of quote unquote payments. 600 years ago, Hard Home destroyed. 400 years ago, the doom of Valyria, as in Hard Home, but an actual continent. Uh, they believe that given sufficient stimulation, an egg, a dragon egg, can actually be detonated instead of hatched, releasing a concentrated firepower in one catastrophic blast on par with a nuclear bomb. That was interesting. Don't know if I believe it, but I was like, oh, that's really crazy thought. So the too long don't read is that hard home was a weapons test, a red flag, right? A false flag, if you will. The faceless men's dry run for the doom. Both events are described with the same post-nuclear verbiage, bright as the sun, raining ash, devastated wastelands, haunted, accursed, demons, ghouls, monsters, and the story of Hardhome and the fall of Valyria are very prominent in Arya's storyline and in the House of Black and White. I think there's a lot into that theory that it could be linked, um, and there's a lot with Melisandre that's theorized about. I read a theory a while back that she could have been a slave from Hardhome that was sold by the Freehold to Ashai. It doesn't 100% work out time-wise. I do think it's likelier that she was probably closer to the Doom of Valyria, maybe sold to the Temple in Old Valyria, but right before the Doom, lots to consider. Don't know. Need the next book, please. But I do think the Faceless Man proto-detonation theory is just interesting because we talked a little bit about bravos recently in our house valerian episode for five dollar or not patrons but the faceless men are that kind of petty that they would wait 200 years in between a big event to do something opportunistic and catastrophic and they're basically like the deep state in planetos i feel like they have like power over everything Arya's plot absolutely revolves around them and their secrets not to mention the citadel and pate and the alchemist and i just am curious how george george will reveal this we'll find out eventually but they're very prominent, right? Bravos is this gorgeous slavery-free place with the arts, a prominent means of living and busking and oysters and shit. And uh, the Faceless Men date even before that. To me, it's very likely they birthed Bravos. Uh, as they say in the World of Ice and Fire, no discussion of Bravos should be complete without a mention of the Faceless Men. If there's one place anonymous rich assassin elites can create for themselves, it would be this passion paradise where people are free to enrich themselves in everything in Bravos. Uh, trade. It's a fantasy city. We even kind of feel that when Westerosis that aren't Arya visit in her plot in The Wind of Winter's Mercy. If you guys have read that, you might know. 
So, I don't know, it's food for thought. It could be something like that. It could be completely not, but it is interesting that it has very Doom-like qualities about it. Yeah, there's a lot of theories tying the two together, and of course some of it stem from, like, was Hardhome just, like, a volcanic eruption, right? Um, there's so much in this John chapter that's talking about it, though, that it feels like there must be more to it. Mm-hmm. I'm There's a part of me that's, like, kind of boring, and is like, but what if it was the simplest answer that they were just taken and sold to slavery, especially with all the imagery of smoking ruins? We know that the Valyrians weren't above doing that. They mm-hmm. did that to to old Gis, right, and salted their fields. I think also like in the Punic Wars, not just like decimating it all with fire, and and what just took them and yeah, them to be and slaves. Hardhome but was on the brink of civilization, like running, you know, yeah. I, I, it's probably not that it, it. There's probably something magical to it because it is a song of ice and fire. But I'm just like I don't know. It's not. I definitely the realm think of what there's nuclear imagery life. going on here. Yeah, George likes to kick things up to love it, as he says. So I, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out because I, as we said in in the Forgotten Characters episode, like. There's not all this attention being given to Mother Mole for no reason. I don't think that she's necessarily important, but whatever's going on in Hardhome is significant and not in the way that it was in the award-winning hit HBO TV show, Game of Thrones. (laughs) Something else that I think is interesting, John says that Hardhome, as we've hammered home just now, is not the (laughs) nicest place, but that Mother Mole preached that the free folk could find there they could find freedom where damnation had once been. And I'm just saying that, like, George is very very into this interplay of opposites. It's why it's called A Song of Ice and Fire, everyone. (laughs) Because if ice can burn then love and hate can mate, right? This is the thing he's super into. The whole, like, life and death, finding the dire wolves, like, in the dead dire wolf or life paying for death in general but saying maybe there's a shade of optimism too i kind of like the idea though that of reconciliation that freedom could exist somewhere that damnation once existed i think that's the whole thing too right like suffering to get that freedom for your people yeah it doesn't even need to be like that there is suffering but just like that there can be at the end of a tunnel there's a yeah, and I know a lot of other people have made the argument amongst our friends that George is romantic, not yeah. a nihilist, so. I could agree with that. Well, Septon Selador is like, wow, that lady's a heretic. Only the seven can give salvation. They're doomed. And Bowen Marsh is like, the wall's been saved by this woman. I'm so grateful. We have no food to feed these people. You know, the typical, like, when Jesus is at your door response, what do you do? You yes. know, like, hungry and bleeding and, you know, cracked feet and walking for miles. Jesus is at your door. What would you do, Christian? Would you feed this brown man? No. Uh, that's kind of what Bowen Marsh is doing right that's now. That's what Bowen Marsh is doing. He's like, absolutely not. Up, Bowen. Absolutely not. Get Jesus off my door. John's annoyed. This is not the point. He's like, there's no shelter from cold at hard home, according to Cotter Pike. The thousands of people, men, children, women, they're all going to die yeah and john's like giving the speech and all bowen marsh has to reply with this thousands of enemies thousands of wildlings and that's italicized which i think is supposed to make you see that there's a lot of hate between it and honestly john's not just annoyed like he's furious in this moment i like that it says um 
anger rose inside him, but when he spoke, his voice was quiet and cold. You're seeing, you're seeing that Ned Stark. You're seeing that Lord Snow come out, and I don't blame him. All right, I think that it's this response from Marsh and this like mentality of his that like keeps me from ever really warming up to him or his point of view. Like I don't think that, like I think that it's right that John was kind of going against some of the tenants of the Night's Watch. Like I get it, and. I think that's that's true, but I just like I just still can't see eye to eye like with Bone Marsh at all. I just can't fathom how you can like think of thousands of people in that way and just think of them as only thousands of enemies and not like as John says in this interiority, like men, women, and children. And for you to just be like, yeah, good riddance. I'm glad they fucking died. Thousand thousands of them. Like I just can't. And and as we were saying at the beginning of this episode, like. Things like this happen all the time around the world, like people thinking that way. And, and I don't know, Part this part right here, this is the subtext, again, becoming just the entire, it's the text now. It's the entire rest of what this exchange between John and Selador, Yarrick, and Marsh has been about the whole time about, and John's just calling it out now, like that reliance on prejudice to dehumanize everyone who isn't them cutting off their own nose to spite their face because he's like they're not okay first of all they're fucking people and second of all they're all gonna come for us if we don't do anything because the others killing people to use as pawns it's the same thing as what Selador, Yarwick, and Marsh are arguing for here what they've been doing in a metaphorical sense they're stripping people of their humanity to be underneath them in this power system and i think that's a huge part of what a song of ice and fire has been about that conversation of who has power who doesn't who gets to be considered human and who isn't considered human and like how this shouldn't be a conversation at all and I, I'm just going to throw out this book recommendation out there. Like, if that's something that really interests you in a book series, go read the Broken Earth trilogy by N.K. Jemisin. It's a masterpiece. Each one of the three won consecutively uh, the Hugo Award for Best Novel three years in a row. And each one absolutely fucking deserves it. Um, but coming back to this and the beginning of the chapter, Val was talking about, right, this half-blind horse... She's like, no, it's fine, because I know where to go. I can see. And it's better, right, than these three who do have eyes, and they refuse to see, because John calls him out at the end. What he says, his language comes back to the beginning of this chapter with the blind horse and says, are you so blind, or is it that you do not wish to see? What do you think will happen when all these enemies are dead? Again, George is really ending these John chapters, like, just mic drop, and uh, it sucks having to now talk about the very end of this chapter, because I feel like you just mic dropped that really well in speaking about power structure and who gets power and doesn't. That's entirely what this is about. Uh, these men, these giant man babies, are, like, upset because they think other people are going to take power and that it's going to take from their allotment of power, right? And it won't. It's literally going to save their fucking lives, as it's said in the rest of this chapter. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like, if the others don't reach these guys first, the people of the Watch will. These guys of the Watch that are so soulless. And I mean, you look at Yarwick, and you look at uh, Salador, and you look at Bowen Marsh, and each of them has flaws that are so painted across them. Not just in this conversation, but I mean, even before. I mean, Septon Selador is a drunk, right? Bowen Marsh is intolerant. 
uh, the George has painted their issues very well, and here they are before us preaching that they're perfect, and it's just very ugh, ugh, ugh. The end yeah. of the chapter. Are you so blind, or is it that you do not wish to see? What do you think will happen when all these enemies are dead? Above the door, the raven muttered, Dead! 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 Let me tell you what will happen. The dead will rise again, in the hundreds and the thousands. They'll rise as whites with black hands and pale blue eyes, and they'll come for us. He pushed himself to his feet, the fingers of his sword hand opening and closing. You have my leave to go. Septon Selador rose, gray-faced and sweating, Athal Yarwick stiffly, Bowen Marsh tight-lipped and pale. Thank you for your time, Lord Snow. They left without another word. They lost, but John loses the war. Yup. Bummer. Yeah. It's too bad he dies at the end of this book. I feel like it's so pointless analyzing John's chapters. <laughs> it's not like he's never going to come back, right? Never. That'd be so silly. George isn't cheesy like that. Damn, you can tell they lost because Bowen Marsh isn't even angry at this point, right? Because his face is in red. I don't it's know pale. if I would say that his face, that gives that away. I don't know if he would even say he's lost. I think this is more like he knows what he has to do. We already know Joffrey yeah. got ideas from people talking around him. That's I'm true. I'm just saying. Same I mean, shit. John's John's been feeding them the ideas to assassinate him throughout all of their exchanges. I'm gonna be real, like since John, previous chapters. every chapter, kill me, kill me, <laughs> from the good place. That's straight up John. Yeah, he's like, oh, remember those guys who mutinied against Jared Mormont? Would be a shame if something like that happened to me. Uh, he's been doing it this entire book. <laughs> it's uh kind of the calm before the storm, right? This is what this is. Next chapter's nuts. We've got. What, Alice Karstark shows up, doesn't she? Midway through, something like that. We got uh, Val, we got Tormund. We've got a full cast next chapter, and it is going to very much take up at least the hour, hour and a half, two hour slot. I am excited about it, though. I'm very excited for that next week for John 9. Yes. Oh, man, it'll be nice to see Tormund again. Har! Bring some levity. We need a little bit of happiness before uh, John dies. Yeah, and I like Alice Carr Stark. You know, she's a wild card. <laughs> wild card. Thrown Stark. into the mix. Yeah. Well, guys, thank you so much for joining us this week. If you guys have not already, please be sure to check out our monthly Patreon episode for $5 and up patrons. We released it last month for November. It is about House Valerian. We had a blast. I loved the episode. I re-listened to it and I had a blast. Yeah, I think uh, as I was editing it, I was like, I think this is one of our funniest episodes yet. And it's actually, I think, good. Yeah, I feel like we actually got some good info in there, too. Not just jokes. We got the jokes and we uh, got the seahorses. You know what I mean? We do. So, (laughs) everyone, hold your (laughs) seahorses. You guys can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. And of course, if you would like to keep up with our other episodes, we are continuing to do our A Song of Ice and Fire read-through with John, as well as breaking down the episodes of His Dark Materials before starting back up with the books with the subtle knife in 2020. You can keep up with us on Twitter at Girls Gone Canon, or maybe you too have an email just like Pat. You can shoot it to us at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. 
Make sure you're subscribed to us on all of our podcasting platforms, whether it's Podbean, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Acast, Stitcher, or any other RSS feed. Make sure you subscribe for the latest updates. As always, I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. And I have been another one of your hosts, Eliana. We'll talk to you guys next week. Goodbye.